I was basically designed for our three dogs. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in a small space and you have three dogs that need to get around and need storage and need a 40 pound of dog food stored somewhere, we, we kind of designed it for them. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 215 with Nathan Huning and Callie Broyle. Say you build a tiny house on wheels, but you want a legal place to park it. You fall in love with a piece of land and decide to buy it and create a legal tiny house community. Would you believe me if I told you that it would take nearly two years and hundreds of thousands of dollars? My guests today, Callie Broyle and Nathan Huning, did just that. They certainly didn't expect it to take so long or be so challenging, but they're here to tell the tale and share what they've learned along the way. Stick around. Let's face it. Most tiny house dwellers want their tiny homes to be small, but not uncomfortable. That means reliable, unlimited hot water. Precision Temp's propane-fired hot water heaters reliably provide unlimited hot water, and they're specifically designed with tiny homes in mind. In fact, the NSP 550 model was installed in my own tiny home, and the reason I chose it was because it did not require a large hole in the side of my home like other RV hot water heaters. Instead, it mounts discreetly through the floor of the tiny house and works quietly and reliably. Right now, Precision Temp is offering $50 off any unit plus free shipping when you use the coupon code THLP. So head over to precisiontemp.com and use the coupon code THLP at checkout. Right, I am here with Callie Broyle and Nathan Huning. Callie and Nathan skipped a wedding registry in favor of cash gifts to build their tiny house. They started that tiny house in 2015, finished in 2017, and moved in 2019 to a 30-acre farm near Saxapaha, North Carolina. I should have asked you how to pronounce that. Did I, did I get it okay? All right. They spent two years... <laughs> <laughs> they spent two years establishing a tiny house on wheels residential community and nature preserve with seven full-time neighbors and six more on the way. Callie and Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. So what a journey. I, I kind of want to start at the beginning and just ask you what got you interested in, in tiny living in the first place. So I suppose the short answer is it had come up on my radar many years ago. I, I have an email I sent to a friend I saw in 2009 to a tumbleweed article or something. I was like, I didn't know this was a thing that you could do. And mm -hmm. so it was something I had been thinking about. We met in 2012 and we were talking at one point about, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we moved someday into something like this? And I, I think part of the attraction early on was when I sort of suggested it and Callie responded favorably. I thought, okay, this is a, this is a life partner. I can, <laughs> I can stick with somebody who would go on a journey like that. And, and so we sort of knew early on, uh, and as you mentioned in the introduction, we, we knew we were going to do it at some point. And so we, we, um, we did a, a faux registry where people you know, we listed on, on the website, like instead of like a coffee pot or a platter or whatever, we did like a composting toilet and siding and nails and, you know, and it wasn't that you were actually buying those things. It was just that, you know, it would, it would, when someone purchased right. it, it would be taken off the website, but it really just gave us cash. Yeah, um, a lot of people thought they were buying it. So like, <laughs> grandma would call up and be like, did you get that toilet? I sent you? I'm like, yep, grandma, it's on the porch. Thanks. We're using it every day. <laughs> But um, and then we the short answer is so we used like the the money from the wedding plus money that we'd saved up just beforehand, and then I got laid off unexpectedly in 2015. And before I went to get another job, we just thought, hey, this is sort of our chance. Let's let's use this time. And that was sort of where it started. I was going to say I was going to add that we both before we met, we had both lived had extended stays abroad. So um, I worked in Ghana. Uh, creating a vocational school for about five years on and off. And Nathan lived in Honduras for a year. Mm -hmm. And just in those spaces and in those countries, we were living in smaller spaces. 
and spending a lot more time outside, you know, amongst community. And we were both very drawn from that to that from the start. Hey, you don't need a 2,400 square foot house. You know, it's, it's fine living smaller and it's actually better living smaller because you interact with people more outside with your neighbors, you know, and that lifestyle was really appealing to both of us. Yeah. And isn't it kind of amazing how people just feel the need to buy you stuff for your wedding? I know this is a total <laughs> aside, but like, it's so hard to convince people that like just giving you money is actually way better than g- giving you stuff. But it sounds like you kind of found the the life hack around that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we talked about maybe setting up a service just for people that want to do tiny houses where it's like, it's a faux registry that you can kind of do or, but the funny thing to your point is that even now that we've been living in it for six years, people still give us stuff all the time. And we're just like, this is awesome. Where am I going to put it? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a struggle. Yeah, the struggle. The struggle never ends. <laughs> um, so tell me about your your design and build process. Like at this point in 2015, when you were like, okay, jump, let's do this. Had you already like designed the house? Were you ready to go? Or is that when you really started the serious planning process? That's a really good question. So we relied heavily on tumbleweed back then. So in 2015, Mm -hmm. there were not nearly as many YouTube resources as there are today. Your house, I think, had already been completed Mm -hmm. at that point. And we used yours actually as inspiration, which I will uh, mention in a moment. But so we, we paid for a tumbleweed weekend course in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so I spent all day Saturday, Sunday, back when they would do like mm-hmm. workshops and you'd pay. And then when you paid for one of those, you got a discount on plans for one of the houses. And so we had identified one of their houses and so bought plans and bought a trailer from them. We ended up throwing out the plans uh, completely and just doing a, a fully custom build that Callie, Callie laid out and has served us really well. We, we basically just used you know Pinterest Google and just sort of made a lookbook of, okay, these are sort of the bits and bobs that, that we want. But Tally laid out the actual floor plan and uh, it served us extremely well. It was basically designed for our three dogs. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in a small space and you have three dogs nice. that need to get around and need storage and need a 40 pound of dog food stored somewhere, we, we kind of designed it for them. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, dogs are like, Dogs are people too. I mean, in terms of <laughs> the space that they take up, they need somewhere to sleep, they need somewhere to eat, exactly. and they need somewhere for you to store all that. Yeah. So one of them is, um, you know, a Garnu. lot of. <laughs> so one of the um, we have a bit of, of the... a lag, but go for it. Yeah. <laughs> one of the um, things we designed was the staircase. You know, the staircase is all cabinet storage for the dogs you know we can fit a 40 pound bag of dog food in one of the steps toys which, meds yeah. treats and, and the very bottom step is a water bowl that pulls out for them and then you can push back in also we have a pull out step so that it creates a lot of extra room in the hallways when, when the dogs aren't using it so we really only need the stairs at night to get the dogs up into the loft so that was helpful we have um right what else did we design for them? Well, the sofa itself. So we have a, like a sectional U-shaped sofa mm-hmm. that we can include in the show notes, I guess. And it pulls out into a daybed. And that's not only good for guests that might want to stay, but also we sort of just leave it in the daybed configuration most of the time because both of us and all the dogs can kind of fit there at the same time. And, and ours is a small, relatively, I should say, back in, in 2015, 20 footers didn't, didn't seem especially small. Uh, ours is an eight and a half by, by 20 foot. But these days, as you know, you see 24, 32, 36, like they're sort of getting crazy triple axle stuff. But ours ours is relatively modest still. Yeah. But yeah, we made sure the dogs could go up and down the stairs and um, you know, we built a fence and things like this to hold them in. But yeah. Our deck is also a key part of our build. Um, and we built it so that it was kind of, it was movable. So we've already moved it to two different locations and rebuilt it. So it's kind of modular, but our deck itself is bigger than the tiny house. It's 12 by 20 feet and built into two different sections. And one section is a screened in porch. And then mm-hmm. one is just a um, covered 
covered area has a clear plastic so it lets all the light in to all of our windows because we counted recently and we have like 14 windows i think in our in our small tiny home wow so is the deck um permanently built in place or could that be moved if it if it needed to be moved yeah it's modular it's built into two pieces it's freestanding too so you you theoretically could just tow the house away and it would still just be standing there uh we bolted to the house just for wind and that kind of thing but yeah it's a freestanding deck that's in two two pieces very cool so um the build um looking looking at you know from your bio that it took two years to build, I'm guessing that you built it yourself. Correct. And how um, can you kind of tell us about some of the details of construction? Like how how is it constructed? What type of insulation? You know, some of the systems kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. I think so. It's uh, stick built two by fours. We used as much reclaimed lumber as we could. All all. 14 of our windows, I think Callie mentioned, were all secondhand kind of used, reclaimed replacement windows. Uh, we used uh, rigid foam insulation, so three and a half inch poly ISO throughout. So all, all you know, floors, walls, um, roof. We, we, we got have, that secondhand too. That was also purchased secondhand, yeah. yeah. And um, we've got radiant heat in the floor, which we're huge fans of. Uh, it's propane for the water heater and for the range and then everything else is electric uh it's just a small shower stall three by three shower pan base so we don't have um, a tub but we do have uh, a stack washer dryer it's a smaller unit it's like a 24 inch wide but we do have a stack washer dryer nice that is a huge part of it and we also have a, a fisher and pakel dish for a dishwasher that we quite love it's a shed style roof so just single slope that's the drawer style Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's awesome. I a hundred percent would recommend if you, we got the cool. like a scratch and dent model on eBay for, for like half price, which was awesome. And the dent was in the back. You can't even see it. Two loft. Two loft. Yeah. So one's a sleeping loft and one is like a shorter loft just above the living area, which is sort of like has variously been a, a workplace, like an office. It's uh right now it's like a study. There's a bookshelf and some cushions and a guitar and things like that. And, um, I think there's anything else kind of noteworthy. Oh, I do want to say uh, for the external design. So one thing I that we noticed doing like planning the design is that you'll see because you've got like a in cases 11 to 12 foot wall, you know, to reach that 13 six from from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not unusual for people to just have the same kind of siding or cladding all the way. But in in normal residential construction, you have like a first floor, second floor, third floor. And so it'd be really unusual to have that much vertical space with the same kind of siding. You'd usually have some break at the floor level, first and second floor. And I remember seeing your design early on when we were doing like our lookbook and planning, and you had the cedar shakes kind of at that half story above, um, you know, the first floor at the eight or nine foot level kind of thing. And I was totally taken by that. And so we totally stole it in our design. So we have wood siding on like the first floor and then the, like the second half floor is all cedar shakes and so thank you for that excellent design choice of yours because we totally used it and love it something unusual we did was build over the tongue you know you know you don't see that done too often and we actually fit in a 20 foot tiny home we fit a stacked washer and dryer over the tongue and so it's you had to kind of build around the washer and dryer <laughs> so we put it in and then we have like a panel that comes off and you can kind of access it from the outside, but we li- literally built around a stacked washer and dryer. Yeah, if you think about it, so it's it's a, it's boxed in, but it's a triangle because it's the tongue. And so we have the washer dryer, we have the water heater, and then we have our like exterior hookup. So the water and electrical, all in that little kind of boxed area. And that includes we have like a UV filter to purify water that comes in because you never know kind of like what your water will be, and then also like a whole house charcoal filter. Mm-hmm there as well so boxing in that little tongue area was a huge part of of the success i think of the build because it created a lot more space that we wouldn't have otherwise that's really clever and that's you know that's a lot of things that you don't normally well really just the washer and dryer that you wouldn't normally see in a 20 foot tiny home um i certainly wouldn't be able to fit one in mine without (laughs) i actually just don't think i'd be able to fit one in mine period 
Um, has the has the bump out on the tongue for that washer and dryer affected like the towing turning radius? Because I know that can be a like a concern when you build out over the tongue. It's true. If you're not totally careful, you could potentially hit the bumper of the truck. But you you have to do more than a, like a regular turn, just a ninety degree turn. You're fine. So you'd have to be like doing a goofy U turn or backing it up or something. So it's and we move it so rarely that the trade off is a hundred percent worth it. Nice. Yeah, I would. I I have laundry envy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you you finished the tiny house in, in 2017, and um, by by my accounting of your bio, there's a there's a two year period between when you finished and when you moved to the the farm. Um, so you know how many different places did you live, and and how did you end up, you know zeroing in on on this particular farmland yeah so we originally built our tiny house on mason's dad's property in durham north carolina and that was super helpful because he has and he is an engineer by trade and has an engineer's mindset so he was able to troubleshoot all the problems with us or from early on and from there we moved it to our friend's property in Durham, who had three acres, um, kind of in rural Durham, it was the end, end of a gravel road. And out of necessity, we kind of started looking for land. We were really happy there. It was three acres of land, wooded, beautiful. But, you know, if a neighbor complains, you're technically living illegally when you're on someone else's land. So we got a notice on our door one day mm-hmm. from Environmental Health saying, hey, what are you doing with your septic here? (laughs) Where does your wastewater go? (laughs) Where does your wastewater go? Yeah. And so at that point, it kind of lit a fire under both of us being like, okay, well, they they know we're here and it's only a matter of time where we're going to be able to, or when we're going to be able to, or when we're going to have to move. And so um, that was when we started seriously looking for land. And it took us maybe six months to find land maybe longer yeah. maybe even longer luckily environmental health or the county did not come back during that time and kick us out but we were looking for land that that perked was the main thing because we realized at that point then when we were looking we were wanting to do a community we said if we're solving this problem there's no place to park a tiny house in the triangle right now that's legal so if we're doing it for ourselves and we're going to the all the investment to do it, we might as well do it for other people who are in the same situation as us. And so at that point, we looked for land and the main consideration was, does it perk? And testing the soils. So Nathan actually found the land on Zillow mm-hmm. and we fell in love with it as soon as we walked it. It was, you know, the topography was, was beautiful, rolling, sloping hills had a pond, had a creek, half meadows, half forest. So we both knew when we saw that piece of property in particular, that that was going to be the home of Grammar Meadows. And I'll, and I'll point out too, that the, um, when we were living in that other place, about two, a little under three years at that other location, we, we, we spent about $5,000 out of pocket putting in uh, sewer connections into, because there was a house with a septic. So we just tied into the septic that was there. We put in a water line. We paid Time Warner to run, and so we we were quite comfortable there and had like a flush toilet and everything. But at the time, you know, we could either afford to build the tiny house or buy land, but not both. So we opted obviously for, for doing the tiny house. And we looked at a lot of properties uh, in that six to nine months plus that Callie mentioned, and just nothing felt right. It was either just like clear cut, looked like a football field, or just wasn't that interesting. Or the location, it was like forty minutes to the nearest gas station, you know. So you're juggling all of these requirements. And, and to Callie's point, we were thinking like, okay, we'll buy a spot for ourselves and then maybe try and, if we're going to put in utilities, let's put in extra, like three extra hookups or something. So maybe something like three to five acres, we ended up buying 30 acres. So 10 times more than what we planned and uh, a lot more expensive than we had planned. But as Callie mentioned, having looked at all these different properties and we saw this one immediately, we're like, oh, this is it. And um the the tricky part was when we put it under contract in the spring of 2018, we didn't have a way to pay for it, but we had a due diligence period of six months. We basically said, okay, we're going to buy this. 
and we give ourselves six months to figure out a, a way to pay for it. I would also add too that um, in narrowing our search, we talked to all these different planning departments from four different, five different counties, right? So we kind of did our research early on mm-hmm. as to which county was going to be most receptive to having a tiny home community because the rules vary county to county for RV parks and how long you can stay in an RV park. And, you know, that's kind of what determined that we'd settle in Alamance County. So it did narrow down our search after talking to the planning department and figuring out the rules specifically for Alamance County. What were the rules in that particular county that that made you want to to do it there? Well, one thing, it didn't have zoning. And um, that was really helpful for our cause because with 30 acres, you know, we wanted to be able to do multiple things. We wanted to have a farm, wanted a tiny house community, and then also some other way to make money because we realized we were going to go into a lot of debt starting this community. (laughs) So um, we're thinking uh, event center down the line. We're doing an event center, a retreat center, or something like that to help us pay back. Mm -hmm some of the infrastructure. So we needed no zoning was a big attraction. And then also they follow uh, ordinances instead of, I guess, instead of zoning. Right. Right. So we, they have a manufactured home ordinance that was pretty clear cut and that's the ordinance that we followed. And it was, you know, straightforward and, you know, they don't really have any rules for how long you can stay in an RV park or a mobile home park. I'll, I'll give you an example. So in Durham County, the the rules are you can't stay in an RV. And of course, tiny houses on wheels are considered RVs in most jurisdictions. You can't stay in a tiny house on wheels for more than two weeks, like even in an RV park, the zone for an RV park. Uh, at the state level, if if the jurisdiction, the county or the city does not have any law on the books, it just defaults to the state level, which is six months. And so Alamance County basically said, uh, we don't have any ordinance. So six months is fine. And you can just sort of keep renewing the six months. But to Callie's point about the zoning, that, that was a really interesting thing, because if you're looking to buy land, you're looking at land, and you're trying to figure out what the uses are, the zoning, the residential zoning ordinance will tell you, okay, this is where the single family homes go. This is where the factories go. This is where the commercial district is. You know, And so if you're looking at some land, you're like, oh, I'm going to turn this into a tiny home park. It might be zoned for single family homes. And they're, you know, you'd have to rezone it. And the challenge, that's a lot of cost and time. And Frankly, you'd have to get all the neighbors to agree because they're going to do a public hearing and they might all show up and say, I don't want an RV park next to my house. And so uh, the fact that we were able to find a county nearby that did not have rules around this meant that we could have, as Kali said, a single family home next to a working farm, next to an RV park, which is essentially what it is, next to an event center, next to a whatever else, you know, we kind of want to do with it. And uh, but I will also say, too, when you talk with planning boards. Uh, mo- most county and city planners are very helpful. You might you might expect that they're going to try and turn you down right away. But when we talk to a lot of planning, uh, county planners or city planners, they say, oh, we love tiny houses on wheels. They're awesome. I would love for you to, you can't live in one. I'd love for you to be able to. You can't. Uh, and it's not any, you know, they're, they're obligated to enforce rules that they didn't create. So regardless of their kind of personal preference about it, it says, well, according to the city of, let's say, Chapel Hill, uh, you know, you can't live in these. It's too bad because I'd, I'd love for you to do it. I'd love if we could. So they, they often will be your allies in in, in saying, like, oh, let, let's see how we can make this work, yeah. whether as an ADU or something else. So that's that's one piece of advice is uh, don't look at them as adversaries, but as as advocates. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, people who work in planning departments are usually passionate about housing from one angle or another. And, and tiny houses are kind of an exciting movement in in housing and in affordable housing. So that's really great advice. I asked John and Finn Kernahan of United Tiny House Association what they love about their Precision Temp hot water heaters. And here's what they told me. Hey, Ethan, uh, this is uh, John and Finn Kernahan with United Tiny House Association. We organize tiny house festivals. Oh, yeah, I guess so. First and foremost. (laughs) We have a total of three Precision Temp uh, on-demand hot water heaters. The, the thing we really like about these, and, and, and folks know this, I think they've picked this up on Finn and I, if we don't like something, you'll never hear us talk about it. 
So the two things we noticed uh, that, that we noticed and experienced immediately, uh, they took painstaking effort to make sure that it was done right and installed. And so that, that was pretty cool right there. The other thing is the continuous on-demand hot water that just ran forever without any fluctuations or anything. I, I can't imagine an application, especially in our environment and our lifestyle of being the, the nomad, transportable, mobile, tiny lifestyle where um, one of these units aren't um, good to use. I'm curious, did you end up having to kind of get any um, rules changed or any kind of waivers to existing rules in order to do what you wanted to do? Yes and no. And I'll have Callie if she wants to chime in too. So the short answer is we didn't necessarily have to. When we approached the planning board of Alamance County, we said, this is what we want to do. They said, well, the nearest thing that this looks like is a mobile home park. So we're going to just regulate it like it's a mobile home park. And so they gave us all the rules. It was roads this width, setbacks of this amount, road frontage of you know this much, this, this much, that. So as long as we met all those guidelines, they were like, yeah, go right ahead. No, no problem. We already have a, a, a protocol for, for this kind of development, this kind of community. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll point out too that, that for listeners, you know, there is often a distinction between a manufactured home park or a mobile home park and an RV park. Mm-hmm. Uh, manufactured homes tend to be per- intended to be permanent. You actually have uh, an address, like a street address and this kind of thing, whereas an RV park is more like I'm passing through camping with the family kind of thing. There's no, there's no like address or anything like that. So, so we wanted it to be a, a mobile home park, but they're on wheels and the county was okay with this. Mm-hmm. Now, in our particular case, there were some elements of that ordinance that we were not able to meet, but it was mostly just because the land was so challenging, the topography, so much earth moving we had to do. But basically the, the room that we had, like for example, they all had to be on 8,000 square foot lots, which is a one-fifth of an acre, which was fine. But in order to get them to fit, we're like, well, we can't have a setback of 45 feet from the road. We just, we can't. Like three of them, we can do it, but four of them, we can't. So we basically had to appeal before the, the planning board, first of all, to get their blessing. And then we actually appeared before the county commissioners and said, we want to do this project. We're like 90% of the way there. We need a, an exemption, basically a variance. So essentially, we need you to basically pretend that we're okay with these last bits uh, if you think it's a worthy project. And four to one, they said, yeah, go ahead. We'll let you, we'll exempt you on these couple bits that you can't meet because we think it's a worthy thing to do. Hmm. So um, where, where are you now in terms of the community? Because um, I've checked out the, the Notion website. I love Notion. I use it myself is you know there's there's phase one and then there's phase two on that on that plan where where are you like are there other other tiny houses there (laughs) so we completed phase one as of october 1st of 2021 awesome so we've had seven spots open for six months and it took a few folks a couple months to move in but they're fully occupied now and we hope to start on phase two with six more spots, maybe this summer. The um, start on the road and you know the septic and some of the infrastructure, and it will probably take about a year to complete phase two. We have a long wait list for phase two, but and we'd like to start tomorrow. But we just the the money and the the cost of the infrastructure and the financing were very complicated, and we kind of got in. A little over our head, not knowing all the costs up front when we first started. So we basically ran out of money um, before we could start. Halfway through, yeah. <laughs> Halfway one, through. Yeah. So we had to get really creative with with financing. So I can talk about that too, if that's of interest. Yeah, if you want us to break down the numbers, ultimately, so our, our tiny house is there. So we have ours and then seven more, so eight total. We, we will have one or two also available for temporary rent, like Airbnb if folks want to come and scope out the place or just visit the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then six more. And ultimately, the 13 number, to Callie's point she mentioned earlier, when, when you are doing soil testing throughout property, you basically see how much of the soil is percolable. Like, will, will, will water, wastewater percolate? And then basically, they'll work backwards and say, okay, if, if the flow rate for this soil is X, 
then you can only fit Y units because each unit requires X number of gallons per day and you know, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. so the number the county came up with with our planning, the max that we could fit based on all the ordinances and requirements was 13. Plus the 150 wedding venues. Plus 150 person wedding venues. Okay. Uh, and then we also said, let's just throw in a couple of houses in case in the future we want to build like a clubhouse or a, we want to build another house for ourselves kind of thing. So so the the process of, uh, and I'll just tell you, when you're developing land, and there was nothing out there. There was no water, no power, no sewer, no nothing. When you're developing land and looking for stuff like this, the question is, where do you poop? That's like the number one question, like is yeah. you're, you're limited by your wastewater. And then from there, you can work backwards to other kinds of things. But like, that's the number one most important thing. And so that was what dictated sort of the use of the land. Yeah. And I would add on like just a piece of advice for anyone who's looking for land for a tiny home community. Uh, Nathan mentioned this. Try and get as long of a due diligence period as you can. We negotiate, we paid a little bit more in due diligence, but we, it was worth it. We needed six months and we got six months to kind of do our research on the land because you don't want to be stuck with a huge piece of property that you, you can't develop into a tiny home community. Right. So, you know, it was really important for us to one, do the soil testing for the wastewater. You're in the county, you're in the city. It's different. You can hook up to uh, city sewage, but in the county, you need to put in a septic, you need to put in a well, we had to put in a road. During that time, we also found a landscape engineer, Bobby Tucker from Bodie Design. And that was huge for us. So he could walk the land with us and kind of, we didn't know what we didn't know at the time. So we kind of walked through everything with him and he helped us develop a site plan and figure out kind of um, what systems we would need and what infrastructure we would need to go forward with this because this we were both completely new to development. So hiring someone, some consultant early on is really huge in developing a site plan. And then also I would say, and we weren't so great about this, is developing a budget You know, before you go forward with it. Um, so if you hire that site, site engineer and they help you like figure out the systems you're going to need, then you can get some quotes on those systems. And the major uh, cost for us were road being number one, cost of land, and septic were the, I would say, the big three. And then there were a bunch of... Um, well, there's even engineering, engineering pay, paying, costs, paying, yeah. paying engineering fees uh, and permitting. Yeah, so just to give you a sense of so the land we bought, uh, 30 acres was a little under 300,000. We put down 70,000 that we had. And then on top of that, just the road and the septic together, just what we have so far, those two is a little under half a million dollars. So, so just give you a sense of like that, that's sort of what we're dealing with. And yeah, we are collecting rent from seven tenants. Uh, we're still in the red. So the fact that we're still having to like finance from other, like our full-time work just to create, and you know, we, we could double our lot rent probably right now and still have a wait list, but we're, we're aiming to keep it as affordable as possible, even though we're in the, in the red, I, I expect and hope that with the final six, we'll break, phase two, we'll, we'll, break even. we'll be a little above break even at least. Well, no, that's great. We still have to both work <laughs> full-time jobs, but you know, to, to do it, but um, you know, we're not, we're not getting rich. Right. You're not getting rich if you're going into <laughs> doing something like this. That's not the idea. Right. And then maybe the hope that the, the wedding venue or the, um, the Airbnb rentals could help okay. bring in some additional income right. yep. on top. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I my understanding is that it's it's more difficult to get a mortgage for land when you're right. not also building a house on the land. Correct. Um, Much more difficult. How how did that work for you? I'll just say so. Initially, we thought our only option was well, we're going to have to borrow money for to build a house also. And so we're basically going to build a house that we don't want. And we spent $5,000 on architectural engineering permitting fees just so that we could then have plans and build and borrow more money on top of that. Uh, in literally the, like, we went through three, four lenders in that six months. I think literally in the two weeks before we had to close, we found a lender who was like, oh, no, we'll, we'll lend it to you just for the land without having to do a house. Carolina and, Farm Credit. Yeah, and it's basically a, a, a farm credit, ah. a, a credit union that mm-hmm. specializes with farmers, and they've been awesome. 
like yeah. saving grace and everything about them. They the rates are a little higher with land. It's closer to like seven, eight percent versus like mm-hmm. a typical three to four percent kind of loan. Wow. Uh, but there's other benefits. They give, they pay you dividends because it's like a cooperatively owned thing. And so we get like a cash dividend every year that sort of offsets that higher interest rate, which it's it's uh, brings it down to around five percent or so. That's awesome. What a what a huge and amazing undertaking. Um it's do you and I asked this question seriously, like if you knew how hard it was gonna be to do it, looking back, would you have done it? <laughs> Probably not. I think we both would say no. Yeah, I think I'm we're so <laughs> grateful and glad we've done it now. Like you have no idea. Like we are so happy. All the people that live out there, it's exactly what we wanted it to be. And we can talk about that. But we looking back, we probably wouldn't have done it. Just knowing, especially knowing the financing and the cost of everything going into it, we would have been like, there's no way we could afford that. Yeah. <laughs> well, just to, just to tell you, like, so we, we had to get, I mean, we, we've both been working, each of us have both been working two full-time jobs for like the last three and a half years. Mm-hmm. So, so we actually have our actual gigs. Kelly's now full-time on the farm as of just a year ago. Um, I still have a full-time job, but for a while there, we're both full-time. We're trying to develop this property. We we actually bought land in Durham, a house, and renovated it and sold it and used the proceeds to put back into the property and then did it again just to try and scare up cash that we didn't have to borrow. So here we are working full-time jobs, developing this community, and nights and weekends going to work to renovate a house to sell. (laughs) All in all, we probably have, well, we know we have at least a million dollars into the land and the infrastructure and 60% of it is debt financing. And the rest is stuff that we've, we've put in through our own savings and equity and flipping houses. (laughs) And I mean, anything that we could do to try and make it happen. Wow. We've been really, really fortunate. A lot of support from the universe, like the partners that we find, like Callie mentioned, our wastewater engineer, because the road and the septic had to be combined. We found good surveyors. We found good grading companies. We found, These are all. We yeah. found us an Uncle Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, his name's Sam, and he's a retired yeah. general contractor. <laughs> so he helped. He's um, kind of been a consultant for us on a lot of the projects because he has so much experience. He's helped us figure out how to turn all the old buildings on our land into renovated spaces. And without that help, you know, I think. Without a lot of the help that we found, we would have been really lost. Wow. Wow. Um, you mentioned a minute ago just about the people who live there. And and I was curious if you could talk about, you know, the community that you've created and how, how that's set up. Sure. It was, well, Nathan and I call ourselves benevolent dictators. <laughs> we um <laughs> we um talked to a lot of i guess co-housing developers in our area and across North Carolina before developing the land and all mm-hmm. their advice was the same don't do it <laughs> like intentional communities yeah <laughs> um and you know it's just really hard when you are trying to come to a unanimous decision amongst you know, 12 different people. And with us having so much of our own money and labor at the start of it, we realized, you know, that we kind of had to create a community that we, we wanted to live in, you know, but also that we had final say in just because it was, you know, so much of our own, our own money that we had poured into it. Yeah. So that being said, we lucked out because we have the first seven that came to us was pretty organic. We did tours and it was mostly word of mouth because people didn't know about our community. Um, we didn't you know, have a ton to show for it. So people walked the land with us and we found seven tenants that are wonderful. They all have a similar mentality to community and uh, community focus. So we have different committees now. So we have uh, two 
two ladies leading the chicken committee and they have right now they have 14 chickens in their tiny house lost little baby chicks <laughs> that are getting ready to build a chicken coop for nice. and it's kind of <laughs> kind of a shared shared model where everyone's going to take care of the chickens and we'll rotate we have another couple who's living there who's taking charge of the the community garden so everyone will have a plot in the community garden mm-hmm. and the model right now is just like you know, you have an idea. We have lots of land, lots of space. Come to us with an idea. We can all talk about it. But Nathan and I will make the final decision. And we'll also bring us a budget and we'll pay for the the startup cost of your project. Um, so I think it's a win-win for, for a lot of people living in the community because they have access to land and funding that they might not otherwise have had. Anything you add about the residents? Just that they're all terrific and we lucked out and we, we feel really fortunate to, to have such great neighbors. And, you know, when you live somewhere, you never kind of know who you're going to get. But we sort of got to not really like select them, but, you know, it, by, by virtue of living tiny, e- even though you're really different, you, you have this shared touchstone that, that you have that, that means that whatever else you, you, you have in terms of your personality, your life, like you share this one kind of thing about living more simply, being outdoors observing nature, you know, being a steward of nature. So that that's something that runs through all of it. And I'd say too, we have a lot of diversity in terms of in terms of income, in terms of gender expression, in terms of age. We don't have diversity in other areas, but we're hopeful for phase two that we will we will, you know, see more diverse people. Nice. And um how um well how much does it cost to to rent a spot there? And do you do like, is it like a year long lease or is it month to month? Like um, I'm guessing that you, that you hope that people will stick around for the long term. but how do you have that all structured? Yeah. So um, I'll answer the second part of your question first. It's, it's month to month. And that's mainly because of the legal issues. So our lawyer advised us to do month to month. So, um, you know, we are, it is technically under North Carolina law, right? So you're supposed to stay six months. But that being said, everyone in our community Mm -hmm. is very well rooted. And most of them don't have plans of going anywhere. We charge 600 a month for lot rent. And that includes your water, your sewer, Mm -hmm. your trash, your road maintenance, um, it includes uh, an actual address, like a private mailbox, uh, does not include power, does not include uh, internet. So you optionally take out those two in your own name. But we have plenty of residents who don't do internet and they save a bunch of money and um, power you sort of have to do. But um, And that way you use kind of more variable. But we, we put in a community, like gigantic well that serves the whole community and um, we have a, like a dumpster on site that we pay for. So you just kind of bring your trash to the dumpster and then a truck comes. And We also have a lot of community spaces too. Mm-hmm. So we have some of the old farm buildings that we renovated. They used to be cinder block like pig stalls. <laughs> we renovated them into um, a community kitchen with a washer and dryer. We realized early on that a lot of folks in tiny homes don't have washer and dryers like us. So we created a community kitchen where folks can wash their clothes too. And we also, next to the community kitchen, we have a community guest room and we rent that out for $30 a night. If you have your family coming in and you don't have a place for them to stay. And there's also a deck with a hot tub and we do a lot of, awesome. a lot of potlucks up there and just party social, social stuff. And a lot of this is hard to visualize. So I will, I will, uh, for your listeners, encourage them to, Click the link in the show notes. Uh, Tiny House Expedition just wrapped up filming uh, last weekend. They were here for three days doing a, a, a tour of the house and a tour of the community. So that should be out in about two weeks. Awesome. Yeah, I think people are going to be really excited to see. And I'll, I'll embed the video right right in the show notes page for the episode. Um, and so you, you actually created a street, Tiny Home Run. Correct. Uh, I didn't realize that, you know. Two of them. People are going to be able to take out power and internet in their own names. Well, now, now you know why we spend so much on the infrastructure. But yes, no, they have an actual street address and a mailbox and they get packages delivered and they have internet in their own name. And so in order to do them like that's we I, I mentioned before, 
we permitted it as a manufactured home park. Like if you go to a mobile home park, all of those units have their own address. They have their own. It's a, it is a private road, class one private road that's 20 feet wide. And the fire marshal said an ambulance and a fire truck have to be able to pass each other on the road. So yeah, if you're just like living in somebody's backyard and there's no road there and you're just doing it all on your, that's fine. It's real cheap and it's real easy. But to actually do the infrastructure, we created a small city. And I think if we'd known how much that would have been at the outset of how much work and money, I mean, and so if you're like, oh, 600 bucks a month, that's like so expensive. But it's like, well, first of all, there's a there's an RV park up two miles up the road um, that has 55 units, spots, you know, packed in like sardines, no ponds, no community building. And they do $550 a month for their long-term rental and they're booked out nine months. So we were like, well, let's try and be competitive to the area. But yeah, we, we would love to to charge more because as I said, we're we're about $2,000 a month in the hole that we just have to make up in other ways just so the community can keep going. We, we are passionate about affordable housing and my background is in nonprofit too. So we are trying to, we, we are kind of a nonprofit right now. <laughs> Not my choice. Not my choice. But we are trying to think creatively about how could we, you know, how could we still remain affordable housing and make some of this money back? So one idea that came to us for phase two was potentially doing a sliding scale model. And, you know, there's, it's 50-50 in our community for folks that are, you know, there's, there's a lawyer in our community and then there are folks who are making more towards the minimum wage, right? And that's a big discrepancy. You see all types of folks in tiny homes. And so we were thinking, you know, what if we had a range of $550 to $800 and, and for lot rent, you know, and that way it would average about what we needed to make per month, but it would still be affordable for those that needed it to be affordable. Nice. What is there like a resource or a service you wish existed to help more people live tiny who can't afford it? Well, one resource that has been awesome for us um, is NC Tiny Living Facebook group. Mm-hmm. One of my friends, Mary, actually two of my friends, Mary and Peter, run that group. And you can post in there. They have you know thousands of people in there. And you can post in there and you can just get a whole dis- discussion going about how someone's built a certain tiny house or how you know they've installed solar or where to put your tiny house. So that's been a hugely helpful resource for both of us. And I think one other resource that's lacking right now, and Nathan kind of phrased it really well one uh, one time I heard you recently say, you know, there's the place you don't know where to, what's lacking in the tiny world community is one, where to put the tiny house, right? And two, how to fund the tiny house. And I'll just say for us, we've built a couple tiny homes our friend has on our lot. We have a warehouse. And recently, we had someone who bought a custom tiny home from us. She had a 800, 800 credit score, 800 point credit score. She made it, she made, uh, you know, a decent salary. It was more lower middle income, but she was paying $1,600 rent in Chapel Hill for the last five years. And she could not, she could put $20,000 down for her tiny house. And she could not find any bank, any bank to lend to her for a tiny house. And that was just so frustrating to see and made us both very upset. And we ended up, our friend ended up doing a a loan to her owner finance loan for the tiny house. But it just uh, kind of put a fire under us that, you know, down the line, if we ever make some of this money back, that we would like to start a credit union for specifically for tiny homes and for earthen building homes. We have a couple earthen buildings on our property that we've made. And our original, when we were getting financing for the land, we were trying to do an earthen building, like a larger earthen building. And we approached eight different banks. We both were working full time, decent salaries, not any debt at the time. And we could not get one loan one bank to say for a straw bill house in yeah. particular when she says earthen building or, yeah. or cob or cob yeah, yeah. And, and ethan i want to point out too i i think i, I want to recognize you and your efforts i we've, we've never spoken before but we've been following and admiring your work for some time both in terms of 
your advocacy, your your describing in your own process of building mm-hmm. and, and your your education work, your consulting work, your tiny house engaged community, your podcast. So I, I think you've gone a long way towards creating resources to help people mm-hmm. learn what they need to learn. And so uh, I don't know if anybody has recognized that, but we've been really fortunate and, and grateful for that. And so that's that's certainly like a, a plug, uh, at least for Tiny House Engage, <laughs> the role that that you're playing in the community. So we were quite, quite grateful for that. I I appreciate that very much. It's uh, I feel sometimes I'm just feel like I'm sitting here behind a computer and you know, you're kind of out there building a community and really making a difference. So I, I really appreciate what you're doing too. Um, I wanted to to quickly circle back to, to one thing that I wanted to ask you about back when you were talking about your house, your build, which was the warm floors. Um, I'm curious um, I always like to ask people about them because I've heard mixed reviews of of whether or not they can kind of be the primary heat source. So what has your experience been with with your heated floors? Like, can that heat your tiny house by itself or do you have to supplement? A hundred percent, yes. Wow. In, no, it, we, in North Carolina. Yeah, so first of all, we live in a mild climate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so North Carolina, North Carolina, we do get freezing temps, mm-hmm. but it's no Vermont. Let's just be clear. Mm-hmm. But so our mini split is a dual unit. It's a heat pump also. But honestly, we turn on our floors in October, set it to 55 degrees and don't turn it off until March. And that's honestly maybe count on one hand the number of times over the winter that we even need to turn on the the mini split overhead heat. But, you know, we have a lot of solar gain uh, because of so many windows and it's southern facing. And then also, of course, heat rises, so you can sleep more comfortably mm-hmm. in the winter. And, and it's nice to have. Um, now, we did. I will, I will point out, we had cork flooring initially, which we love and was amazing. And it's warm and the dogs liked it and everything. Mm-hmm. The, because it's like an organic material, it, it, it expanded and contracted in response to that heat. And so um, we were seeing huge gaps form over uh. the winter. Now, we did end up getting like a water leak in the bathroom that ruined like half the floor. So we had to tear it up anyway. We went back and put vinyl on top of that, mm-hmm. and that's been. There's no expansion, you know, in, in vinyl at all. The dogs don't like it because it's super slick, and but it's really easy to clean now and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. you do want to be sort of a little conscientious about the kinds of floor cladding that you use. But it was really, it was like 500 bucks in and out the yeah. whole system, and so I highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, for anybody in any climate. Yeah, it's a game changer. Wake up and have. And it's an electric feet. system, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it's real, it's completely noiseless. So you don't have any like fan blowing or furnace or, I mean, it's, it's just marvelous. Yeah. I, I, I would, we've done two other builds yep. and we, we did it in both, both of the other two builds. I would just include it with every build that we do. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Callie Broyle and Nathan Huning, thank you so much uh, for being guests on the show. It was really, really wonderful to hear about everything. And, and I, I would love to come visit. So we've got a uh, for you. next come time I'm time. in that area, I will, <laughs> I'll look you up. Awesome. awesome. Thanks for having awesome. us. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much to Nathan and Callie for being guests on the show today. You can find show notes, including a full transcript photos of Cranmore Meadows and links to all of their Instagram profiles at thetinyhouse.net slash 215. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 215. That is all for this week. I am your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.